Hey, everybody. We're here with my good friend, Adam Atlas. Adam, welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Thank you very much, Patty. It's a privilege to spend some time with you. Uh, thank you, my friend. Hey, listen, I, I know you and I have known each other for a long time, but um, I'm not sure everybody out in listening land has. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And in particular, you know, law's a massive undertaking. What made you, what kind of a, you know, what made you decide to uh, specialize in payments law? Well, uh, I'm licensed in New York, uh-huh. uh, full disclosure. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know uh, you are in Canada, but you're licensed in yeah, the U.S., so. That, that's right. I'm also licensed up in Canada. Uh-huh. And I started my career at a large corporate law firm uh-huh. at doing M&A transactions. And a young, I, I went to a cocktail, and someone I met at the cocktail introduced me to a young man who needed a company incorporated to be a payments company. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, that's neat. And uh, it was slightly frowned upon because it was a large law firm, a sure. you know, large, prestigious firm. It was slightly frowned upon to sort of take new incorporations, startups. Uh, this was back in the, uh, I guess, in the early 2000, well, late 90s, actually. Right. Anyways, running against the grain, I took him on as a client. And don't you know it, he became a really substantial ISO, uh-huh. it's now known as um, Nuve, once known as Pivotal Payments. Right, sure. Yep. Uh, yeah. uh, recently acquired SafePay for you know something like 500 million euros and ran off and joined the circus. So that that was my first client to answer your question uh-huh. in the business. Uh-huh. And I really learned a lot from them. And after a few years of doing that, I said, you know what? I think I'd like to have my own firm doing only payments. Uh-huh. And that was 15 years ago. And since then, we've advised uh, over a thousand ISOs, uh, wow. and we Goodness. we've followed our clients beyond the payment processing business into the regulated space of money services businesses, right. money transmitters, sure. mm-hmm. uh, cryptocurrency, etc. So, so that's where I come from, and and what I really like about payments is you have to be on a learning curve every single day. Yes. You know, it's not at all an industry where you can sit still and say, you know, tomorrow is going to be the same day, same type of scenario as today. Right. Tomorrow is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And and I like that. I embrace yeah. the change. Sure. I, I enjoy learning. And yeah, so that's where I come from. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. A lot of my friends, you know, say to me, you know, you're a journalist. Why do you write about payments? I'm like, because it's constantly changing. It's constantly. Yeah. Always something new. There's always something new. You know, if it was boring, <laughs> I wouldn't have stayed with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, I understand completely where you're coming from. Well, listen, you know, I know you advise a lot of organizations and individuals on contract negotiations with acquiring partners. I know you and I have talked about this in the past, and this is a topic that I addressed here a few weeks ago in the podcast, but I was hoping that uh, maybe you could describe for our listeners some considerations that should go into the contract negotiation process, you know, maybe some gotchas to watch out for. Sure. We have, because we do roughly 100 or so ISO agreement reviews per year or uh-huh. agent agreements, Right. we have a kind of a checklist. I, th- I think that last check is around 30 items on our checklist, and wow. I won't bore your listeners. With all <laughs> 30. Through the whole list. <laughs> right. But, Maybe um, some high level. The, yeah. The high notes are, look, you know, when you're a sales, you know, whether you're an ISO or an agent, you want to know 
that the hard work you do in recruiting merchants is going to be compensated. Right. So first of all, are we going to get paid? And are we going to get paid what we think we're getting paid? So this sort of goes to mm-hmm. quantum of payment, right? Right. So there, there's a hundred different ways to slice payment, payment uh, like pricing in an ISO agreement. I won't go into all the detail, but you know, are we getting 50% or 70%? And 70% of what exactly, mm-hmm. right? Right. If the merchant is doing, you know, Visa MasterCard processing, that's great. We'll get 70% of the residuals. Wonderful. But what happens if the processor also sells to the merchant cash advance, gift card, ACH processing, sure. check processing? Am I going to get a taste of that? I mean, after all, I did the work as the ISO to bring this merchant in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of question number one. Question number two, is, and, and again, sticking with payments, how long are those residuals going to last? Right. When times are good, I don't, there's no doubt I'm going to get paid. Most processors slash ISOs and agents expect the payments to continue when times are good. But when times are not so good, you know, let's say I haven't brought a new deal in six months, mm-hmm. or let's say one of my merchants blew up and caused a lot of liability for the ISO. Right. Or let's say, and this is where it really gets interesting, one of my merchants came to me and said, you know what, I'm getting terrible service, I'm paying too much, and I really need you to take me somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that is like sort of a dreaded moment for an ISO because they're like, they're stuck between the prime need of serving the merchant and giving excellent service to the merchant versus non-solicitation clauses right. that are right. absolutely par for the course in ISO agreements. So, to, you know, to finish this second point about payments, how long will my payments last? And let's say we terminate the agreement amicably. You know, let's say it was a three-year agreement. I send in a notice of termination 90 days before the end of the third year, and we, we go our separate ways. But the ISO or whoever's getting paid, the agent or ISO, probably wants to get paid on their book of business following termination of the agreement. Mm-hmm. Now, asterisk, I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't have an asterisk, <laughs> um, assuming the termination is not for some particular bit of wrongdoing by the ISO or agent. You know, right. if an ISO or an agent you know, actively and intentionally and in bad faith picks up and moves a bunch of merchants away from where they had been placed, that's going to put the residual stream in jeopardy. There's no way, there's no way right. about it, you know, no mm-hmm. two ways about it. Now, uh, an- another dimension of the relationship is, can I count on my processor or whoever's paying me to do the right thing by me in a big sense, in the sense of what happens if they call my merchants that I brought to them and resolicit those merchants, get them to sign new merchant agreements, and then I lose my residual, mm-hmm. right? right? They only knew the merchant because we brought them in the door. Right, yeah. How dare they use that information to effectively steal my revenue, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's a concern. I also, as an ISO or an agent, I might have people working with me, referral sources, employees, agents. I'm concerned that the ISO or processor paying me is not going to actively and intentionally gut my business 
take my people away from me, mm-hmm. who are the lifeblood of my business. Right. Uh, and then finally, I would be concerned about where are my liabilities? Right, sure. In signing this contract, you know, am I, am I assuming the liability for merchant fraud and chargebacks? Mm-hmm. Maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part yep. of the bargain I've struck with my processor, and maybe that's a good deal. But maybe not. I mean, uh, most ISOs do not assume liability for merchant fraud and chargeback. Right. Because they don't have the personnel, the systems, the sophistication to manage that risk. So that needs to be clearly defined. You know, when, when one of your merchants, and it, it happens in every portfolio, when one of your merchants produces, you know, $100,000 of chargebacks right. and Visa MasterCard fines, etc., uh, or there's a security breach at one of your merchants, uh, do I expect to be on the hook for that? And you need to sort of make sure that that's clear in the right. contract. Sure. I, I think those are the high notes, you know, of, of a typical contract. You know, one, one question I had to kind of follow up with that, you know, when we're talking about these agreements, one of the things that I find myself, a question I find myself trying to answer a lot lately with consulting clients is this question of registering the brand. Uh, so kind of before I move off of the agreement stuff, I just kind of like to get your thoughts because this is an area that I find where there's a lot of confusion in the industry about what it even means, like why should you register your brand, but even more so, what are the benefits of doing that? And so I'm just kind of curious as a follow-up to that, we're talking about ISO agreements, but I mean, really these agreements are very similar whether your brand is registered or not. How do you feel about people registering their brand? What are What is it and what do you look at as, as kind of key benefits of doing that? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. You will get different answers from different people. Sure, of course. Uh, let me start by stating for those listeners who haven't, you know, sort of dealt with this issue before, sort of summarizing what the registration concept is. So the Visa and MasterCard rules are very clear. You know, the name you use to solicit merchants must be a registered name. So, for example, if you're an ISO of First Data, and you have not registered your own name with the networks, then you have to use the name First, First Data. Data. sure. Right. But if you're, you know, Acme Merchant Services, that's your company name, and you pay the 15000 or or whatever the fee is these days to register, you can then register as Acme Merchant, you can then solicit, I should say, as Acme Merchant Services. That's a, a business decision to make, you know, is it, is it worth it for me to do that? And now to answer your question, the... The fact of registration allows the ISO to build a brand recognition. Sure. And for some business models, that's very important. Right. Right. You know, maybe they're in a geographic area or maybe they're in some niche market, you know, I don't know, serving dentists or something, right? And they want to be, you know, dentistpayments.com or something like right. that. Right, sure. Right. And, and for that kind of scenario registering your name and being able to use your name is terribly important. But maybe there's another business model, which is, you know, I'm running a call center with like, you know, 100 people doing telemarketing of merchant services. I don't really care what name I use. I just want to close deals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, right. In that scenario, whether you use Acme Merchant Services or First Data or whatever, Maybe it doesn't matter so much to you because maybe these accounts are going to be short-lived accounts anyways, you know, et cetera. But I guess a more mature answer to your question is most serious ISOs that are in it for the long haul will want to register. Sure. 
and you know we'll want yep. to build a kind of a brand. All things being equal, if you own a portfolio that is associated with a brand, it's worth more than if you own a portfolio that is under the corporate brand, for lack of a better term. Sure, I can yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. What, one last follow up on that, Adam. What what you mentioned fifteen thousand, you know, as kind of a general approximate, you know, cost of just the registration process itself and the the fees associated there. What's like a time frame? I mean, I know it, it varies all over the place. Do you have any kind of guidelines on that? I, people ask me all the time, and I give them answers from my own kind of experience, but you've got so much more experience with that. Any any thoughts on kind of timeline, what to expect if somebody does want to register uh, their brand? Time is usually an issue for people in a rush. <laughs> sure. And those people, I like to say to them, all the stars are aligned and everybody's doing as best they can. Right. 90 days. Okay. Sure. 90 days. And... You know, have I seen it done faster? Yes, I, I've seen it done faster. Have I seen it take longer? Yeah, yes, I have. But, you know, in today's business world, the word tomorrow doesn't exist, right? Right, it's, right. <laughs> I've got a business plan. I spent a lot of time on my business plan. I want to go to market today. What, do you, what have you got for me? Mm-hmm. Right. And then they hear this, you know, like you're saying, they hear this like, 90 days? What are you talking about? What, what am I going to do for 90 days? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. so, so right. that's, look, we're dealing with very big, you know, organizations, organizations sure. that have processes in place that have been in place for decades uh, about boarding ISOs. Now, right. to be fair, you are selling a financial service. That, that is the genesis of the registration concept. Sure. Someone mm-hmm. has to be accountable for what the ISO tells the merchant. Sure. And the reason, I think, for registration is accountability. Yeah. And, you know, apart from the positive sides of, like, you know, branding and all that kind of stuff, is the merchant can say at the end of the day, Acme Merchant Services said it was going to be 2.7%, and I paid 5%. How dare they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, mm-hmm. They've got someone to finger, you know, when the chickens come home to roost. Right, right. Okay, well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, Adam. Um, I know that in the the past I've seen you uh, speak on and write about cryptocurrencies, you know, like Bitcoin. I'm wondering whether you see these having any real impact on the payment space and, you know, if so, how that might play out. Right. Well, I must say it's been quite a wild ride in cryptocurrency. Oh, it has. <laughs> I'm, in a way, proud not to have lost my mind uh, over the course of the past two years, although it, it, it would have been easy to do so. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually, you know, I stand by something I said a couple years ago. I can't remember the context, but cryptocurrencies are here to stay. Mm-hmm. They will occupy a portion right. of the economy. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of these people who says, you know, the sky is falling, the U.S. dollar is going away, and all right. this sort of you know, cataclysmic type thinking. That is not; those are not opinions that I share. But I do believe, just sort of as a starting point, that crypto, as a store of value, as a medium of exchange is basically here to stay, and it occupies, admittedly, a kind of puny piece of the economy, but I think that that's going to be a growing piece, not because of the speculatory value of crypto, not because Bitcoin, which is today at 8,100 or whatever, then right. one day go to, to, to 100,000, not, not because of that, but because of the amazing, in a way, theoretically irresistible allure 
of crypto, which mm-hmm. is I can hold personally without without anybody getting in my business, I can hold pretty much any quantity of value and send it to any other person on earth more or less instantly for nominal fees. And that, from a theoretical perspective, is is absolutely irresistible. Now, I caution, I caution listeners to keep in mind, particularly people who want to get into the business of crypto, that there are very important anti-money laundering and uh, laws and laws for the prevention of the funding of terrorism, like the USA Patriot Act, Mm -hmm. the Bank Secrecy Act. These laws are there for a good reason. I cannot go down to my local bank and wire money to some very bad people in a faraway country, right? Right. Right. Similarly, I shouldn't be able to buy Bitcoin at, let's just say, a legitimately licensed exchange in the United States Mm -hmm. and send the same value to those very same bad people. Sure, sure. There's something wrong about that. Right. The factual reality of virtual currency is it's very hard to control. And I think regulators, government regulators, are in a kind of a pickle Mm -hmm. over how on earth to rein it in. But to its credit, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is the U.S. Department of the Treasury's anti-money laundering group, right? Yeah. They've come up with what I think are some very sensible guidelines guidance with respect to virtual currency that was recently restated on May the 9th, 2019. It's very easy to find that bit of guidance from that date from FinCEN, and it summarizes all the current thinking. And it basically says, look, if you're going to be in the business of, of exchanging fiat, you know, let's say real U.S. dollars right. for crypto, or you're going to run a hosted wallet, or you're going to be involved in the transfer of value from one person to another, you have to register with FinCEN. Mm-hmm. You have to have an anti-money laundering policy. And you have to check your customers before they walk in the door, before they get access to your financial service. Right. So in a way, uh, it's sort of like, I mean, it, it puts the same parameters around it as it, as it does in a traditional banking relationship, really. Or that's tra- right. Right. That's exactly right. It, it puts the... And our firm provides uh, legal updates to the Money Services Business Association of the U.S. Uh-huh, sure. And, and that was one of the observations we, we gave to them recently, which was crypto businesses are regulated more or less on par as regular businesses. To your point, Patty. Right. The similar outcome. But I guess to answer your question, I think they're here to stay. I really hope that none of them are abused in the way that they were in the ICO craze mm-hmm. or, uh, with scams and illegal securities and pump and dump type of things. Right. It, it's unfortunate, but that whole this technology, the blockchain technology and the crypto technology, has enabled uh, folks to take advantage of, of everyday people. Right. I hope that that doesn't persist. I think there is a kind of, there's been a bit of a cooling off, and I think... The the drop of the price of Bitcoin down to three thousand for a few months has kind of extinguished some of the some of that sure yeah some mm-hmm. of that but but again also the other thing that I, I I know I came across recently that kind of surprised me was you know the proliferation of hacks against these uh, big uh, or you know the the blockchain platforms yeah. that that run things like Bitcoin which kind of says to me, okay, everybody thought this was more secure, but it's not necessarily more secure. It still gives right. you that anonymity that a lot of people are looking for, but 
I mean, wasn't there one exchange, I believe, a month or two ago that was liquidated because it had been hacked to the tune of about $40 million, I think, right? Yeah. You know, that was Binance, one of the biggest exchanges in the world. Right. Chinese space. They managed to recover from that. Some of the earlier ones and others that have been hacked didn't recover. And this is one of the paradoxes of blockchain. It is extremely secure. It is extremely secure in the sense that if nobody has your private key mm-hmm. and you don't lose your own private key, you'll never lose your crypto. Right. Uh, on the other hand, if your private key is stored, you know, on your PC or something, computer, yeah. yeah, and it's hacked, that's well, it. goodbye to your crypto. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, that's that's not the way banking works, right? Right. You know, if right, I right. I don't know put my bank card number on my desktop computer. I don't, I don't expect that to somehow be abused by a hacker to steal all my money in the bank account. The banks have somehow, uh, you know, rightfully managed to protect our money. But, yeah, it's one of the paradoxes, you know. If you, if you have a way to control your private keys, there's really nothing safer. The problem is these private keys, where do you put them? You know, I just came from a lunch with a client who is in the business of storing private keys, and they put them on titanium plates <laughs> oh, wow. in, in special vaults. Vaults, right. Uh-huh. Sure. So, you wow. know, think like ancient Egypt. Yeah. Sure. Like, right. <laughs> That's crazy. Or old-fashioned bank vaults, right? I remember in the days, those, those old vaults. Let me shift gears one more time here because I was intrigued recently. Uh, you contributed a column to the Green Sheet on payments law as it relates to autonomous devices, you know, like autos and refrigerators, Uh even robots. And I found that very enlightening. I was hoping maybe you could, you know, rehash a little bit of that for our audience in terms of what are some of the legal considerations that are going to go into autonomous payments, you know, consumer consent, things like that. Yeah. So today we are used to being offered something by a merchant, presenting our payment Mm -hmm. uh, mechanism and and making a payment it's all very simple right right the most complicated we get with payments is i subscribe to national geographic and they charge me 10 bucks a month (laughs) right right and that's that's an automated payment but warning to listeners i'm a sucker for this sort of jetson's view of the of the near future (laughs) me too okay that goes for three of us yeah forgive me i bought that hook line and sinker so you know, so when I'm in my self-driving car, uh, <laughs> sipping a coffee, you know, checking my Twitter feed, and the car is just zipping around town doing things, it's going to pay for an electric charge. It's going to pay for a toll boost. Maybe it's going to pay to go in a faster lane mm-hmm. or something. It's probably going to pay for uh, your coffee, too. Yeah. Yeah. And... These are not payments that I'm going to be busy authorizing one at a time. That right. would be annoying. Sure. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to program my car or my transportation account to pre-authorize a whole suite of payments according to my preferences. And this raises very important issues of did I really agree mm-hmm. to pay for I don't know what, you know, that my car did. Double mocha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does, uh, what do all the payment recipients get to learn about me? Mm. Does Starbucks get to know that my double mocha is what I want every morning? Is right. that 
reasonable? And does my car now remember? By the way, I'm really excited that you two are in the same ball, like the same kind of delirious uh, <laughs> space <laughs> as you. Yes, right. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking I won't even own my car, right? It's just going to sure. be a, basically a driverless Uber, right? Right, right. And those car fleets, as they're being called now, are going to, they're going to want to know stuff about me, like where do I usually go? What do I usually t- do when I go there? How long do I stay place? This is, raises some very serious privacy issues. Yes, I mean, exactly. You know, we thought we lost our privacy when we started installing all kinds of apps on our phone. Mm-hmm. But in the world of autonomous vehicles and the Internet of Things, it just takes all of that and multiplies it a few times. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to uh, I was talking to my wife the other day, Adam. She started doing the uh, the thing where you go online to do your grocery shopping at Walmart, and then you pull up and they just load right. the groceries in. Right. Nice. And and I told yeah. her, I said, uh, I said, yeah, I can't wait for a couple years from now, and the refrigerator will just do that for us. Uh huh. And, <laughs> and she was a little well, bit hesitant of like, yeah. well. Yeah, but but then, you yeah. know, how is it kind of the, the concerns you're bringing up? You know, I'm just like, hey, it's new technology. Let's do it. It's more convenient. But yeah. but yeah, that brings up some serious concerns. You know, but about what happens in payments? You yeah. Know? But what happens if I don't like Swiss cheese anymore? <laughs> right. Right. Swiss cheese. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. I have a, like a truck full of Swiss cheese at my front door. Right. Because do I it. don't know about you guys, but I do go through fads where it's like, right. You want something, right. something then, all, you yeah. know, and then after a few weeks, ah, I'm tired of it. You know, sure. right. <laughs> but yeah, the privacy stuff there, I agree. I think that that's going to be very interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, you know, it, it is all very futuristic, but, I mean, I, I mean, I think that, you know, we, James and I discussed this a few weeks ago. I mean, automated payments, this is something that ISOs and MLSs need to pay attention to, right? Yes, I think. Not that they're necessarily you know, going to be selling the contracts to Uber, but that right. it's going to be creating a, a scenario whereby. You have to enable their merchants to be part of that ecosystem right. so they don't get left out. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of tipping of the scales between the value of money and the value of data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when a consumer, you know, bellies up at Starbucks, uh, is there is there you know three dollars for a latte? What is that worth versus their credit score, their buying habits, mm-hmm. <laughs> their gender, their everything? You know. Those are two comparable bits of value you know, right. that the consumer presents to the merchant. Sure. And in the payments business, ISOs have been kind of like uh, ignorant, uh, blissfully ignorant of everything going on around the payment instance. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be of benefit to ISOs to think broader than just the payment that they're handling. Yeah. Uh, you know, is there an opportunity for them to enrich the experience of either consumers or merchants using some of that data, mm-hmm. you know, respecting people's privacy, giving adequate disclosure. But, you know, we are right there. And I say we, you know, loosely being, you know, in the payments industry, but we, we deal with the consumer through the POS. We right. deal with the merchant through their portal and their POS and their merchant account. These are amazing places to be present, you know, both participants in the economy that are very much sought after. Right. And I think ISOs shouldn't sell themselves short in terms of 
the value that they can draw from mm. from the relationships they have with merchants and consumers. Yeah, well, I'd have to agree with that. Yeah, and I think if you look at ISOs and MLSs, they're competitors. You know, they're big competitors. They would consider, you know, Square, Stripe, these others. That sure, are, you, you know, know they're going to do it. Oh, they're already. I mean, they yeah, consider sure. themselves more information and technology companies than payments companies. Of course they do. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's a good point. I think it's like, you know, trying to see, you know, what can be done with that. You know, look at even Target, right, and how much they do with data to retarget customers and mm-hmm. increase revenue. So, yeah, I think it's I think that's a very very good point, Adam. Definitely something they need to be looking at. Well, Adam, this has been really enlightening. I'm really happy we got a chance to chat with you, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Before we go, I you know if anybody wants to uh, get a hold of you, learn more about what you you can do for them, uh, what would be the best way for them to reach you? Well, our our website is adamatlas.com, A-D-A-M-A-T-L-A-S.com, or if that's too difficult to remember, just <laughs> Come and stop in at fintech.law. Fintech.law. Okay. And yeah. uh, and and read his columns at the Green Sheet. Uh, they're oh, very educational. Always good stuff. Always great stuff. Yeah. Adam, thank yeah. you so much. Have a wonderful day, and I look forward to chatting with you again real soon. Thanks, Adam. Patty James, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Okay, so last week I gave an overview of check payments and services that support merchant check acceptance. This week I'd like to talk about the Automated Clearinghouse, or ACH, sure. and why and how the ACH uh, should be part of a merchant services product mix. Okay, so the ACH was created in the 1970s as an electronic alternative to checks. It took more than 30, uh, 40 years, however, for ACH payments to surpass checks. In 2018, 23 billion Transactions were processed through the ACH system. Uh, they represented about $51.2 trillion in payments. To put this into perspective, as I related uh, last week, there were roughly 18 billion checks written last year. So when you were saying last week that there were 18 billion checks, I mean, you actually meant there were 18 billion like paper checks. Right. Well, yeah. Not ACH. Like the, that You're was. Right. They're different. They're different. Ah, Completely see, I was actually, different. I was actually kind of thinking they were. Yeah, like that. yeah. Because no. ACH, you know, you can use the ACH to right. truncate checks. Right. But those numbers are in the ACH oh, wow. numbers. Okay. All okay. right. Cool. So 18 billion were written. 23 billion trans- ACH transactions. Got it. Okay. Uh, ACH track transactions. Those. Uh, 23 billion were worth 51 trillion dollars. So wow. almost twice as much as as checks. Hmm. Wow. Now, uh, uh, ACH payments originate through banks and or credit unions and they're based on customer st- instructions of course, and they clear in batches at intervals throughout the day. Most ACH payments take 2 to 3 days to clear, although recent ep- upgrades to the ACH system do allow for same-day ACH payments. ACH payments can clear either as credits or as debits. Uh, the first big use of the ACH was cr- uh, for, for ACH credits, which still prevails today, was direct deposit of payroll. These are payments initiated by businesses and government entities that get pushed to consumer accounts at banks, credit unions, and even prepaid debit card accounts. Hmm. 
And then ACH credits have many other uses aside from direct deposit, including residual payments to ISOs and agents from upstream acquiring partners. And they are commonly used for business-to-business payments. Now, with an ACH debit transaction, funds actually get pulled from the payer's bank account and are credited to the payee's bank account. So the ACH debit is more akin to a check. Right, right. Um, Recurring loan payments are a common use. Sure. Uh, Any other kind of recurring transaction, like, you know, for subscription services, things like that. Yeah. Now, one of the fastest-growing uses of the ACH has been for e-commerce payments. Uh, In the ACH vernacular, they're called web transactions, and they grew by 14% between 2017 and 2018. Really? Yeah. And in 2018, they totaled 5.9 billion transactions valued at $2.9 trillion. Wow. So of those 23 billion ACH transactions, almost a quarter of them were these web transactions. So what would this be? This is like maybe businesses trying to pay their bills through ACH. and stuff. Is this people moving away from paper checks and, and doing it online with ACH? And is also as a replacement for cards. Sure. Okay. To, to yeah. avoid interchange costs. To avoid and interchange okay, costs. Sure. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Sure. That makes sense. So, you know, uh, web transactions can also flow through the ACH as credits. Uh, that would be for P2P payment schemes like Venmo sure. and Zelle. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um. Now, in keeping with its mission as an electronic replacement for the check system, uh, several ACH formats were developed that support conversion of paper checks, the truncation that I mentioned a moment ago. Sure. And this can be, um, there's formats for returning um, checks to, um, that have been NSF checks on behalf of businesses. Right. Okay. Uh, Check remittances to billers and checks written at the point of sale. Okay. Okay. Sure. So point of sale ones are called POP transactions, oh. point of sale payment. Okay. And the ones for, um, then there's also something called back office conversion where you take all your checks and then you of course, use you the go table the top scanner, right. right? Sure. Now, in each of these cases, the original check serves as a source document from which the check writer's account, routing, and check serial numbers plus the dollar amount are captured and used to an or- originate an electronic payment, an ACH debit. Hmm. Uh, now, according to NACHA, just over four billion checks were converted to electronic payments and cleared through the ACH last year. Wow, that's a fairly that's huge, number. and I would imagine that's a number that's going to continue to grow. Uh, actually, it's been it's it's been kind of settling. Yeah, it's been f- kind of flat really? over the last several years because of a lot of the um, rapid check clearing that goes on now. So you don't necessarily, you know, instead of taking that check uh. at the point of sale. And turning it into an ACH transaction, take it back to the back shop, run it through a scanner, and deposit it. Sure, right? huh? You know, so it's, it's still though. It still though seems to me like an area that's kind of ripe for innovation. Oh, mo- most you assuredly. Know? Sure. I feel like sometime in the next twenty-four months, there's going to be some techno- technology or some companies that are going to come out with something where, especially businesses, I feel like, mm-hmm. are going to say, "No, we're just doing ACH," or I don't know. You know what I mean? I think it'll be interesting oh, to see I how think, it goes. And I think you know? with the, you know with these faster payments initiatives that that we have right. going on, right? I think that's a very real possibility, particularly when you couple that with same day ACH. Right. Sure. As it stands now, ACH is going to be a two or three day it's gonna thing. It's going to take actually longer than a physical check. And a physical check. That's if, funny. If you're imaging it and sending it yeah, in that sure. way, right? Interesting so, stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and, and what's interesting, what I found interesting when I was looking up the data for this little report, um, the largest chunk of truncated checks that go through the right. ACH are the representments for NSFs. 
Oh, really? Of that four billion, almost two billion of them were what they call an RCK return checked. So wait, so walk me through that. What does that mean? Why would that happen? Okay, so I I write a check to you. Okay. Okay. And I'm a business or whatever, right? right? Okay. I write it to Altoona Marketing. Let's say. Right. 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 Okay. Okay. I write a check to Altoona Marketing. You present it. It gets bounced for for um, NSF. NSF. Okay. Okay. So then you say, okay, you say to your bank, represent it through the ACH. The reason you want to represent it through the ACH is that when it, under bank processing schedules, yeah, ACH transactions get posted first. Oh, really? First thing in the morning, ACH gets posted. That's very interesting. So a lot of people would rather, instead of representing the check and sure. going through the whole hassle of having to represent a check, I'm right. just going to convert this to an ACH payment and get that debit as soon as those oh. funds are available in her account. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. yeah, 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 and I think there's a lot of businesses that would really benefit from that information. I feel like salespeople could take that and and say, "Hey, yeah. listen, you get you're getting these bad checks. We can take care yeah, of them. Yeah, run them you. run them through our ACH gateway. Right. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah, very important. I think, you know, the ACH has uh, grown to become an important payment option for businesses of all sizes. You know, and uh, they can be faster, cheaper, and more efficient than credit and debit cards, and uh, certainly safer than accepting cash. Uh, unlike card acceptance, there's no PCI compliance requirements associated with ACH payments. Sure. Although businesses originating um, ACH items must take, quote, commercially reasonable steps to ensure the validity of customer IDs, routing numbers, and so forth. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, was, you know I, I decided I wanted to make up a list for everybody. You know, and this is by no means a comprehensive list. But, sure. you know. Some of the merchant verticals uh, where these could where these could work. Sure. You know, and anything that relies on set payments at regular intervals, I think, is a good. Is a so you're saying do subscriptions yeah. for like larger payments. Right. You know. Yeah. So, daycare centers. Yeah. Right. Mail order tel- telephone order firms. Again, that's because it's even if it's not a large dollar, it might be cheaper than sure than a card not present. Right. Health clubs. That's a perfect example. Yep. Home security companies. Leasing companies, nursing homes, as we all age, we all know that. Property management companies, as we said before, subscription-based services. Web hosting. E-commerce businesses of all types. And um, I already said mail order, telephone. Right, order. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, those are really good firms. And I think, I think one of the things that ISOs and MLSs need to kind of take away from this is Talk to your processor, talk mm-hmm. to your super ISO, whatever, you know, and find out what options do they have for ACH right. and for electronic check acceptance, right, from last week. Right. And, you know, you need to understand these. And then some of these verticals are uh, really wide open, I feel like. Oh, I think they are, especially when you start looking at things like uh, like the daycare centers and the subscription yeah. services. And, I mean, how much they could cut their cost dramatically you know really it's like it's like they could really kill two birds with one stone um number one let's say take a daycare center as an example that's using credit cards right now right number one they could cut their cost by probably 100 100 basis points maybe even more maybe more yeah the sales rep would actually probably make more markup on a larger deal of course because they're like hey i'm saving you all this money all this money i have a little bit of a markup so they could say hey you know you're paying two and a half percent to run all your credit cards it's only 70 basis points or whatever you know so they could make money still and then the other thing they're doing too is now 
uh, you know, you could ask the daycare center, how often do you get cards that decline for uh, ex- expired, right. you know, the card expired? Of course, with a sub- or with a subscription service. How right. often does that happen, right? Right. Never have to worry about that again. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Really because good. Very people, interesting. And the thing is, you know, remember with, with this, too, is, you know, payments against your ACH are going against your checking account or, or your savings account. Right. People change their credit cards and debit cards yeah. all the time. Right. They don't go around sw- switching banks that often. No, no, they don't. And yeah. So once you have them <laughs> hooked on that, you know. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah. yeah they're, they're literally going to have to change their bank account to get rid of you. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, I, I know people that say, oh, I'm not going to bother, you know. Right. right. But I, I was having a conversation not long with my sangha. It's a, a Buddhist uh, congregation. Okay. Okay. And we were like, I was, I said to them, it's like, look, you know, we should, instead of, Taking cash and checks, right? We should be doing automatic debits, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, they're like, "Oh, that's that payment stuff you talk about." Right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So anyway, but I think it's really it is it's it's definitely worth uh, pursuing. Yeah, that's awesome. Good stuff, Patty. Very interesting. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Patty, today I want to talk about managing a sales team, um, and I want to talk about uh, negative versus positive uh, reinforcement. And so, okay, just some different consulting calls I've had lately. I always kind of look for like patterns, mm-hmm. and one of the big patterns I've noticed lately is this concept of managing the sales team, and you know how much of managing a sales team is being. Um, you know, positive, 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 rah, rah, rah. Right. You know, you can do this. This is great. Versus how much of it is, um, you know, realistic. What are the issues you're running into? Sure. What are the problems? So I want to give you one of my fundamental rules of management that's really helped me with a lot of different sales teams that I've worked with. And that is um, complain in private and promote in public. Oh, yes. Complain in private and right. promote in public. What does that actually translate into? Well, if you're managing a sales team, you should have a weekly, if not daily, depends if you're, you know, if you're all in one location, daily is great, but, you know, at least a weekly sales meeting, sales call where everybody's on there. Mm-hmm. And one of the rules I have for group sales meetings is no complaining. It's not allowed. Right. You can't complain because if you're complaining, you're admitting that you do not have control over that issue. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. if somebody's saying, you know, well, you know, I think the leads suck. That's why I didn't make any sales this last week. That's not allowed in the group sales meeting because right. that's that's complaining. So the, the better question is, given the reality of the leads that we have coming in right now, what can we do to sell more of them? 
right? We're staying positive. It's, uh-huh. it's you know, this right, is exciting. Sure. Uh, we're talking about, you know, in your group meetings doing, you know, uh, I like to even do pipeline reviews where what I'll do is I'll say, you know, everybody on the call, tell me about one or you know, it depends on how many people are on the call. Two or three people, maybe tell me about five uh, in the pipeline you have that are coming up or if it's, you know, you've got... Uh, you know, just, you know, you've got 10 people on the call. Maybe everybody says one. Tell me about your best prospect right now and why, like, what's the next step to move them forward Mm -hmm. and keeping that positive, you know? So that's your job as a sales manager is to keep those meetings positive. And even if you're just a a one man, one woman show, well, um, you got to manage yourself. That's right. You know, have your meeting with yourself, you know, look at your pipeline. Don't bitch to yourself. Exactly. Don't allow yourself, you know, internal complaining is toxic. Oh, yes. Don't allow yourself to do that because, again, why should you not do that? Because you're then ceding control to this unknown whatever it is, something that you don't have control over, and don't ever do that. You have control over your success or failure, mm-hmm. so you have to embrace that uh, you know, that control and that responsibility. Then you're going to have your one-on-one meetings with the salespeople. Sure. In those meetings, I don't call it negativity really, but what I look at in there is is pure, brutal honesty. Uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. And so uh, I love uh, Jack Welsh from GE and his books. He always calls it candor, he calls it candor. He right. likes he likes that word candor. And I, I do, too. And I think the idea is when you're having those meetings, that's the time where you say, how is everything really going for you? Mm-hmm. Hey, I know we switched lead providers. What do you think of the leads we've been sending out? And, and as long as the conversation is staying constructive. Right. Then it's, you know, uh, like one of my favorite questions to ask my own employees is, um, well, you know, I usually once every six months have a call with my well, each one of my employees individually of like a real one of these calls. that's really, really. And I'll, one of the things I'll say is I'll say, what do you think is one of the weaknesses that I have that is negatively impacting your job? OK. And if you have developed a culture where your employees feel like they can actually answer that question, right, honestly, that my next question is being yeah. honest about it. Right. It, then I'll tell you what, you will get some tremendous feedback, uh-huh. um, just tremendous feedback about things that you can do to improve. And so having that kind of rapport with your sales representatives of whether it's once a month, once every six months, but having those really in-depth one-on-one meetings of how's everything really going? Be honest. What do you think? You know, like another great question, ask your salespeople this question if you do a monthly meeting with them individually what is the what is your favorite part about this job and what is your least favorite part uh-huh what sure. did you enjoy the most over the last month about your time at work what did you enjoy least right and get make sure you get a real answer mm-hmm. you know uh don't get some you know you gotta yeah, dig in touchy feely kind of answer right right yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, you yeah. know well it's really just working on me this last month. oh yeah right what oh. does that mean yeah, no like, like yeah you know, uh, I you know, call BS. <laughs> exactly. So you got to dive in. And so I think that the key thing is, um, you know, complaining in private, promoting in public, and right. that will help you. So when you're managing the sales team, do stay positive, And that's your job in those meetings. Keep them positive. No complaining ever. But you, you're, you're going to have a false culture if you do that in public, but you don't allow the venting in private mm-hmm. and let them complain, you know, about their their coworker that sits across from them that stopped taking showers, you know, and stinks. Right, you, know, right. like, you know, that's not best for the group meeting. Right. Right. But, right. But, you know, they got to have an outlet. So you know, have those individual meetings and, and do both of those and have the yin and yang. And what you'll find is you'll have a much happier, much more productive, much higher performing sales team. So you do just so it can clarify. Mm-hmm. So you do the group meetings yep. and the individual meetings like in the same kind of time frame? No, no. What 
I do is I like to do group meetings once a week. Uh-huh. Again, sometimes even once a day you can do a quick right. one. Um, but those are very regular. The individual one-on-one meetings, those are usually monthly, okay. quarterly, even biannually sometimes. Sure, sure. But those are much less often, and you kind of schedule them in advance so people can kind of prepare for them. Yeah, yeah and, that's what I was wondering, exactly. Yeah, and you'll yeah. let them know. Like, people, once they have their first one, you know. they know how it goes. Yeah, and yeah. I'll tell you another little, little last trick I'll give you is uh, when you hire somebody new, that first one-on-one, take them to lunch. Oh, excellent idea. They can't escape from you, and they're going to have a lot. And eventually, take because the first time, they're going to be very uncomfortable. They maybe have never shared negative feedback with a boss. Sure. And it sure. might take them a little while to open up. So I like to do it over lunch. Right. And then after that, they kind of know what to expect. Like, oh, wow, he's going to ask me again all these, like, right, sure. awkward questions, you know. Yeah. So there's you go. There's your management tip for the day. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.